Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 32. Our special guest is Susan Stroman. Susan Stroman is a five-time Tony Award-winning director and choreographer. Her work has been honored with Olivier, Drama Desk, Outer Critics, Lucille Lortel, and a record five Astaire Awards. Most recently, she directed the new play Dot for the Vineyard Theater. Also at the Vineyard Theater, she directed and choreographed the critically acclaimed musical The Scottsboro Boys. The show transferred to Broadway, where it received 12 Tony Award nominations and later opened in London's West End, where it was honored with the Evening Standard Award for Best Musical. She directed and choreographed The Producers, winner of a record-making 12 Tony Awards, including Best Direction and Best Choreography. For the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., she directed and choreographed the new musical Little Dancer. She co-created, directed, and choreographed the Tony Award-winning musical Contact for Lincoln Center Theater, which was honored with a 2003 Emmy Award for Live at Lincoln Center. Other Broadway credits include Bullets Over Broadway, Big Fish, Crazy For You, Showboat, Oklahoma, Young Frankenstein, The Frogs, The Music Man, Thou Shalt Not, Steel Pier, Big, and Picnic. Off-Broadway credits include Flora the Red Menace and The World Goes Round, Happiness and The Last Two People on Earth, and Apocalyptic Vaudeville, starring Mandy Patinkin and Taylor Mack. For 10 years, she choreographed Madison Square Garden's annual spectacular, A Christmas Carol. For the New York City Ballet, she created Double Feature, a full-length ballet featuring the music of Irving Berlin and Walter Donaldson, and For the Love of Duke, featuring the music of Duke Ellington. Her other ballet credits include But Not For Me for the Martha Graham Company and Take Five, more or less, for Pacific Northwest Ballet. Her choreography received an Emmy Award nomination for the HBO presentation Liza, live from Radio City Music Hall, starring Liza Minnelli. She received the American Choreography Award for her work in Columbia Pictures feature film, Center Stage. She directed and choreographed the producers, the movie musical, nominated for four Golden Globes. She is the recipient of the George Abbott Award for Lifetime Achievement in American Theater and a member of the Theater Hall of Fame. It's a true, true honor to have her on Broadway's Backbone. Hello, Susan Stroman, and welcome to Broadway's Backbone. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm, uh, I'm excited, and I'm scared and nervous. <laughs> uh, so uh, where are you from, and how'd you get started? Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, well, I'm from originally from Delaware, and, uh, you know, I got started being in a dancing school about five years old. There was always music in the house. My father was a wonderful piano player, and my brother played the piano, too, and had a band, and... So music filled the house. Uh, so I uh, was one of those little girls who would dance around the living room when her father played the piano and create choreography when I was very little. So uh, as I got older, I started to take piano lessons and guitar lessons and uh, every form of dance I could, I could think of. <laughs> it just made me so happy. So it was very much a part of me um, my whole life, really. I can't remember not singing and dancing. Was there a moment that you decided, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? I think it was more, it just naturally, I rolled into it because I started to choreograph and direct shows in the Wilmington, Delaware area, the Philadelphia area. I became sort of a, a big fish in a little pond down there and was doing choreography for the local dinner theaters and even, you know, the halftime show in high school, oh, <laughs> you know, wow. so I organized that with the band, uh, you know, uh, so I, it was all about creating to music was very much a part of me, and so it just seemed to, to roll in that, and one day I had a friend, I was working at a dancing school in Delaware, and some, a friend said, um, uh, you know, there are auditions for the Goodspeed Opera House, and I didn't know what that was, or, and he said, do you want to go to New York? And I said, sure. So well, I took a ride to New York and, and auditioned for a show called Hit the Deck. And there were about, you know, seemed like 400 girls uh, auditioning for this. And they picked two girls. And I was one of the girls. And all Great. of a sudden, I had to go back to Delaware and uh, sell my car and tell my parents I was going to some place called 
the Goodspeed Opera House, <laughs> and and I sort of never looked back. You know, I I, I was very fortunate uh, the way that happened. I had graduated from the University of Delaware, and uh, but I didn't really know what my next steps would be. Not that I. Um, worried about it. It just seemed like a natural, something would happen that would have would, would have something to do with music. That's and good. it did. And it, it did. Yes. So, did was performing your focus, but several times you've already said choreography, even as a little kid. Oh, yes. Yeah. I literally uh, am very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing, because I love it so much, but this is what I came to New York to do. Because I thought if I couldn't create for the theater, I really wouldn't want to be a performer. I only wanted to be a creator. And uh, but you know, you just can't come to New York and take over. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I I came and sort of assessed the situation and and just saw what it was and and what it was about and and was able to work. I was able to work because I could sing and dance, but it, it was always to be on the other side of the table. Well, I'm excited personally because you gave me my New York debut with Christmas Carol and then my Broadway debut with Steel Pier. And just thinking about the amount of people that you've changed their lives, like me, with giving them their debuts, I would say about 90% of the people I've interviewed have gushed about you oh. uh, on my podcast, just talking about uh, different things. But before we get to the choreography part, you did go on the first national tour of Chicago. I did indeed, yes. I, I, I played the Hanyak, not guilty. And uh, so we rehearsed in New York, and uh, it was in those days, you know, when sh Chicago was playing, the shows would play, and then they would close, and the very next day a national tour would go out. It's not like mm. now when a show opens and they start working on the tour right after it opens. The, everyone waited. I think they thought, you know, the tourist um, it would be, the tourists wouldn't come or something if, if uh, you sent out a tour beforehand. But now the tourists are so abundant yes. here. You know, it's become such a tourist trade that it doesn't matter. So they start working on it right away. But when I first started, no, no show went out uh, until it, till it ran for a while uh, on Broadway. So Chicago was about to close, and the national tour was going to go out the next day. So we would watch uh, the Broadway show at night, and we rehearsed in the day with Bob Fosse. So I was able to um, have that experience and. And for me, for someone who ultimately wanted to uh, choreograph, to work with him and, and understand his movement and know that every movement was motivated with some image, um, whether it was a waving palm tree or, or wiping the blood off your hands as Charles Manson. <laughs> it, every movement was, had, a, had, a, had some sort of image and uh, so I took that in. Whether that image had anything to do with the story or not, it still was an image, and, and you thought about that image when you danced. And that has stuck with me to this day. So, um, yeah, and I did the tour for a year, and it was with uh, Gwen and Cheetah and Jerry Orbach. And, wow. You know, I got to take acting classes with Jerry Orbach. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great, great year of learning because I was very young and... Uh, and here I was with these pros, and a lot of the Broadway uh, dancers went on the tour too. So I got to, got to have a mix with with the real deal when I oh, was young. That is wonderful. Yes. So you made your Broadway debut with Whoopi. With Whoopi, yes, it was a big tap show. Starred Charles Repoli, who was wonderful, and Danny Serretta was the choreographer, and it was tap tap tap. And uh, I played a blonde Indian <laughs> and, uh, and a cowgirl and. Uh, it, it, I think that ran, I'm not sure, I would say about eight months on Broadway, and, and, but it was wonderful. I had a good time. I'd, so I, I did, when I, when I came to New York, I, did, I was able to work, and, and that was a good thing. And right after that, I did a, a show that lasted maybe two weeks on Broadway called Musical Chairs. Oh. And in that, uh, I met a guy named Scott Ellis, and he, we would you know, sit on the stoop outside of the theater and... and lament about wanting to be on the other side of the table, that he too, he was a wonderful actor and had done several things in New York, but uh, we both wanted to create for the theater and had done that when we were really young. And so he had uh, done The Rink on Broadway with Candor Neb, and I, I had known Candor Neb just briefly, you know, 
uh, with the tour of Chicago. So we thought we'd be brave and knock on their door and ask them if they would allow us to do uh, a version of uh, Floor of the Red Menace and do it in the form of a w WPA theater. And, uh, and we did, and they said yes, which we couldn't believe. So then we took it down to the Vineyard Theater and said we wanted to redo this show and make it very small. And uh, the Vineyard Theater said yes. So I think it's a good, a, a very good learning um, idea to not be afraid to ask that question. Because the worst thing that can happen is somebody says no. So for, for folks out there who want to uh, create or, or, or want to do anything actually, you should just ask the question because there we asked Candor Neb, we asked the Vineyard, and boom, and we never went back on stage. Never went back on stage. No. Wow. And the Vineyard's been a home for you. Yes. So then, yes. So then, uh, you know, years later, got to create um, the Scottsboro Boys with Candor Neb, and um, and you know that uh, went on to Broadway, and I've done that nine productions of it, and it just won the best musical in London. So deserving. Oh, thanks. So deserving. But it's uh, it was, and you know, the Vineyard's a wonderful, nurturing uh, establishment. They need to be applauded also for doing new work. You know, they really are there to do new work with new actors, new artists, and, and they um, really take chances, you know. So yeah, the, the, the vineyards really become home. And then I just did, of course, Dot with them was- Oh, which um, I loved, I loved Dot. And it was so great to see you doing a play. Yes, I know what a great experience. It was written by Coleman Domingo, and who was one of my Scottsboro boys. And uh, we became close, and Coleman's not only a wonderful performer, but he's also a great playwright, and I believe this is about his, maybe his fourth play being produced, and uh, I just loved the sort of family dynamic, and it took place in Philadelphia, and uh, Coleman's from Philadelphia, so we both have the same sort of shorthand language about that time in Philly, yes. you know, so we understand the same music, and the, you know, the same dialogue, and you know, it's, it was a wonderful experience, and I adored the cast. Oh, so you also were an understudy. Oh yes, uh, in all oh, back in Whoopi. Yes, yes. And my question about being an understudy is, is that when working with you, you assign your understudies first day of rehearsal, uh, if possible, and um, if you're understudying, you're strongly encouraged to be at all rehearsals, which I think is great because sometimes there's closed rehearsals or there's uh, rehearsals and they don't assign them until opening night. Right. Did you have an experience being an understudy that you thought I need everyone needs to be prepared from day one? Well, no, I I think no, I loved the opportunity of that, but I think um, I, I think for me when I'm when I'm doing a show, it's uh, you know the the more information you can give anybody, the better off they're going to be. So when I always want the understudies on the side, unless there's some conflict or something, right. or or I'm about to do something and I don't know what how it's going to turn out. <laughs> but uh, I do encourage people to hear what I have to say, what the actor playing the part has to say, how things develop. I would love, love them to see that. So, you know, listen, understudies and, and swings are, are the real heroes of any show. They're the real heroes in, in the story of, of the run of a show. And so to be able to... Um, give them as much information as possible. Try to find hours of a time to get them up on their feet too. Um, give them some really concentrated time to work with them. Um, so, and listen, nowadays uh, they're on. Somebody's on during previews. Oh, yes. And a star uh, is always off during previews. Yes. It always happens. Different from the old days. <laughs> but now you're on. You're definitely, you're definitely on. So you want to help somebody as much as possible. And, and I always say this to my company, too, that make sure that they're very gracious and giving to the swing next to them or the understudy next to them because they're going to make them look good. So everybody has to go in with the same sort of um, just atmosphere and attitude about how to deal with swings and understudies. Uh, which is so remarkable. Because yeah. I think when you walk into a, a room with you, everyone in that room feels that they're important. And everyone feels that they're part of that collaboration project and that they everyone can contribute and then you somehow or another are able to 
organize that that chaos without everyone being like, I have an idea. <laughs> and I love it when you say, okay, let's uh, let's say that went well. Yeah. Is that something that you that collaboration feel that you like? That you it's it's a very creative energy. You can feel the buzz in your rehearsals. Well, you know, I do a lot of I do a lot of research and I do a lot of pre production. So I I do go in with a plan. Now whether I stick to that plan or not varies because I am inspired by actors and I want actors to feel creative but I do go in almost like creating a net for everybody to fall into so if, or, or um, if someone's heading down the wrong road I, I kind of bring them back but I, I, I need to allow them to go down the wrong road so I think that's why I can I can have that feeling in the room and, and myself not panic about it because I have a backup plan yes <laughs> But, uh, but also, it, the same thing, the more information that I've found out about the, the decade or the geographical area of this particular story, the better off uh, the staging is going to be and, and the, the better off I can inform the actors about motivation and decisions. The research that we get to do that you helm as a company was always fascinating to me. In Christmas Carol, there's a bunch of books. and. I was like, oh, I guess we're, are we supposed to read these? <laughs> and then with Steel Pier, we had a week of lectures, a week of dance classes, a week of, um, a, you gave us a research Bible. Even Thou Shall Not, we had beignets and hurricanes <laughs> one night. And it was just something that I don't think I'd ever realized that the people in the ensemble need to be invested in the piece that well as, that much yeah. as well. Yes. Well, of course, you know, listen, the ensemble is the real backbone of any show. They are the real deal. They're the ones that keep the show up. And uh, so it's important, you know, as much information as you give a principal, you give, uh, give an ensemble person. It's, and, and it just keeps everybody um, as a company, as a family. And, and also it, it allows people to ask questions because they know what they're talking about. I love that you used the word backbone. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to use uh, Contact as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw Contact several times, but I, I saw it in the first theater. And that bar was created, the feeling of the bar was created by the ensemble. And then you, you felt like you were there, and it wasn't just because there was a pool table. It was because there was characters everywhere. When you're developing something like that, do you say, okay, you're, the, you're a married couple, you're in a fight, are you pregnant? How do you come up with the freedom and also the structure of creating the atmosphere for the ensemble. Well, well Contact was, was, was very special. It, it, um, it came out of, I was, I was in a, a club around one in the morning down on Hudson and Hubert, and uh, in this club where everybody wears black clothing like any good New Yorker, <laughs> stepped a girl in a yellow dress, and she would step forward when she wanted to dance with somebody, and she would retreat back when she was done with them. And I would watch this girl, like I completely obsessed watching her, <laughs> thinking, this girl's gonna change somebody's life tonight. And, and then she just disappeared, like Brigadoon, she was gone. And it was one of those images also, you know, a girl wearing a, a yellow dress at one in the morning yeah. <laughs> in New York was very bold. It was something I really, you know, was in my my image, in the mem my memory. It was so strong. And I got a call from Andre Bishop, who had seen Steel Pier. And he called me and he just said, you know, if you have an idea, we'd like to help you develop it. And I... And that was like music to my ears mm. because it wasn't like someone handing you an old script to some an old musical. It was that's all I want to do is create, you know. So I said, you know, I do have an idea, and he gave me like 18 dancers in the basement of Lincoln Center, and I called John Wyman, and we came up with a story about a girl in the yellow dress. It started with that that short story, and uh, Andre Bishop and Bernie Gersten didn't come down to like six weeks later and saw what oh. it was and they said oh my god we have to produce this do you have any other short stories that can make it a full <laughs> evening and I said yeah my mind is filled with short stories of course and so we came up with two other short stories that had something to do with contact and the girl in the yellow dress ended up being the biggest one and being the full second act uh, and I love the creative freedom that you have in, in the room but you also there's a professionalism you don't there's no well, there's no cell phones. There's no everyone's properly <laughs> dressed and attire. How do you go from having the freedom and also know that this is a place of work? 
Well, I think that you do have to have that. Um, I think because if, if everybody, if I'm ready for work and everybody, my assistants are ready for work and my stage management, it just it has a vibe in the room that, that everybody's going to be there for work. There's kind of no nonsense. Uh, you know, the thing is I, I do like to laugh and I like to let people laugh too. So um, part, of, part of that is, is you know, done, done with joy. You know, mm. even though it's a very disciplined room, you know, you want to bring joy into the room, no matter what the subject matter, you know. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it is a fine balance, but so far I've, I've, I've not had any company that, that was lazy or anything, yes. you know. Because <laughs> well, I think you, you cast people that love what they do because you have such a love mm. for it. Yes. There's this term that people always talk about being a Strowman dancer. <laughs> and uh, I think, I mean, in, the, in my head, it's uh, the girls from the producers are crazy for you or bullets over Broadway. Uh, how do you think that vi vision of what society sees as a Strowman dancer came about? Because everyone says it, even people in DOT were like, hashtag I'm a Strowman dancer, <laughs> you know, just because it, it, people say it. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I, for shows like, um, you know, for show the thing is, you cast according to the show. You know, if if I'm doing the producers, you know, the girls um, have to be what Mel Brooks's image of of girls are. You know, and they all have to be sort of an offshoot of what Ula is. Mm. You know, something like Crazy Few. They were playing Zigfield Follies girls, so they they were similar because they were all from New York and tall, tall dancers. Um, you know, but if you're, you know, when I'm doing something that, when I did the big revival of The Music Man, of course, everyone was short. Because right, right. <laughs> you know? some of them were playing children and some playing adults and teenagers and all. So I do cast to what's appropriate for the show. Um, but I think, you know, what I, what I would hope to think of a Stroman dancer would be with somebody who's a real triple threat, you know, someone who can really act and sing and dance, um, do it all. Because nowadays shows are written that way. It's not like in the olden days where in, uh, you, you would have a singing chorus and a dancing chorus and then your principals. Now everybody does everything. And uh, so I, you know, I feel like the demands of, of dancers are stronger now. You know, but the, I feel like the dancers on Broadway are real athletes, real athletes. Yes. And have to do it all and have to sustain it. You know, it makes me crazy if I feel like uh, dancers aren't getting respect in some way, and because um, I, I feel like they are the ones that keep keep the show really going. And you always get physical therapists for for the dancers. Yes. I mean, I think you were one of the first people to do that. Now yeah. a lot more Broadway shows do that. Yeah, it's important because you know it's even you know if you're lucky enough to have a show run for a while. Something you know, if you if I'm asking a dancer to keep doing something on the right side, you got to get that right side fixed. Yeah, because <laughs> I don't want you to do it to the left. You know, <laughs> you know so it's, so you just have to be there to help them and heal them. So you've uh, mentioned Mel Brooks, but you also have Woody Allen and Hal Prince. You have some very strong uh, men in your life. How is it collaborating with that type of ego? In a good, not a bad <laughs> ego, just a big, a, just a big. Well, yes. It. Listen, I'm very lucky that. Uh, the directors, when I first started, that I got to work with were were Hal Prince, Trevor Nunn, Mike Ockrent, Nick Heitner. They were the ones that I I partnered up with, and you know they're the best in the business. And uh, the thing is, what you know, when I work with these people who do have big personalities, it is it is finding what how to collaborate with them how to allow them uh, to be who they are and then adapt to them. You know, somebody like Woody Allen is very shy and quiet and, and is very introspective and, and writes quietly and, and writes and then presents to me. Whereas Mel Brooks is very loud and he's up and he's running around and he, he becomes the character. He becomes Max Bialystok or Leo Bloom or even Ula. And he becomes them, and, and the jokes pour out of him. So it's a very dip, you f you figure out how to work with with people like that. Hal is very strong, but Hal is very collaborative, and Hal is um, I know he was sort of the the one who taught all of us, you know, Candor and Eb, everybody about collaboration and how to be a good collaborator. That there's no bad idea. You throw your idea on the table, and somebody might take that idea and turn it into something else. 
So he's sort of the king of collaboration, mm. and uh, and he's very strong. He's very strong. He knows what he wants. He's he has uh, very strong visions, but uh, also a wonderful collaborator. And, and and in the end, you know, that's the answer to it all. How you create these pieces is collaborating with people that you respect. People not only respect them as human beings, but respect them as artists. And and that's how the best work comes to be. And these are strong men. How has it been for you as a woman in this industry to have to fight for your own rights and fight for everything and step up to the plate and have it not be about gender, have it be about talent? Well, yeah, when I started, of course, it was a very, very uh, male-dominated field, and, and it still is, uh, although there are more, more women now. But when I started, it was um, mainly male-dominated, and uh, I was very lucky that uh, Michael David actually gave me my first job as director and choreographer for The Music Man. And then at the same time, I was creating contact. And it was all happening in this same sort of swirl. And um, it, I haven't, I have run into maybe twice um, where you know that the man is not happy with you. <laughs> and you know it's because you're a woman. You know, a very, I had a, a run-in with a very famous orchestrator. And then, um, and then there was a, um, director of photography too which you could tell that they they weren't having the woman thing mm, yes <laughs> but the thing is you it's one of those things you just sort of persevere it's it's not something you can even take time to talk about because you got to get the show up <laughs> you know so it's you just persevere and and uh, and you know do what you do you know if you believe in your art you believe in yourself you believe in what you're trying to say then if if there's someone that's dismissive of you, you just have to go past them. And do you have clues to do that, or has that just been practiced the whole time? Because early in your career, did it hurt your feelings? Because it seems like it still would to me. No, I kept going. Kept going. Kept going. You know, I listen, I, the love of what I do was more important than somebody who didn't get it. You know, so I just keep going. Oh, that's, I mean, that, no, that, that alone is inspiring. So uh, in a, like a broad strokes question, if we take a show, uh, like a new show that you're doing, Little Dancer, how from the day one to when you're getting it up, do you decide, I need to find an ensemble for this piece? From you know, looking for, I think at one point you said you were designing uh, patterns for choreography on, in raindrops on a table. Uh, <laughs> you told a story like that. So when you're out of nowhere saying, I have to get this group of people, how do you start? Well, uh, as I say, each show is different. You know, if you're, you know, uh, choreographing Oklahoma, you need corn-fed looking uh, down-home country folk, you know. But, and if you're choreographing the producers, you need, uh, you know, sophisticated and funny people. Something for like Little Dancer that I'm creating now with Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty, it's, I need people who understand ballet big time Mm. and, and, and girls who dance on point. So it's a, it's a different, because it takes place in the world of Degas and the um, turn of the century Paris, uh, there, is an, there is another type of actor that you need for that. And it's a, it's a, it's, what I love about Little Dancer is when Degas created that sculpture of the Little Dancer at 14, it got the worst reviews he ever got. And it was so upsetting to him, he took it out of the exhibit. It was his first sculpture to ever exhibit. He took it out of the exhibit, put it in a closet, didn't come out till 40 years later, and then it was hailed, this is after he died, and then it was hailed as one of the 10 greatest sculptures ever created. So the whole show is about art, not recognized in its time. Mm. And of course, for all of us in the theater, we live that. Yes, yes we do. <laughs> so the show has uh, really resonates with me, not only with that theme, but just with about women too, about what their opportunities were uh, if they loved being a ballet dancer and if they could not successfully make it as a ballet dancer, what happens to them in Paris at that time. So it does deal with uh, the themes of women and, um, and Stephen and Lynn have written a beautiful score, just an extraordinary score. And Tyler Peck plays the lead dancer. She's from New York City Ballet. Oh. And uh, she's, she's an extraordinary, one of our greatest dancers, I think. Dealing with uh, 
women in body image and in being a dancer and I think there's such a pressure on and now there's a new pressure put on men for body image yes. that it's just as much about your appearance as it is your talent I mean how is that changing in in dance and in theater well I think you know I, I think it's still in the end though it's about storytelling so if um, you need a dancer that does have some weight on him for a particular part of your story to make it more realistic. That's the dancer you're going to go for. Right. Uh, at least in my world, you know, um, someone like Jim Borstelman is a good example of that. Who's you know an incredible dancer, and um, and he doesn't look like the dancers in American Psycho. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But um, but those dancers in American Psycho are spectacular and and appropriate for that storytelling. So I think in the end, for any director, it is it is what's right for the storytelling. And now sometimes you don't get a director that thinks that way, or a choreographer that thinks that way. They're thinking they're just athletes or whatever. But for me, in the end, it's about the storytelling. So, so the body of a dancer needs to be appropriate for that story. Yeah, I, I agree, but I think sometimes you don't, you don't feel that. You're like, I'm gonna give my best thing, but sometimes uh, you're too short, you're too tall, you're yeah, too fat. I know. But, I mean, I've been a stroller dancer, and I'm short. You know? <laughs> yeah. Joanne Hunter said the same thing. Yeah. We, we were like, we're, <laughs> we're short, so we don't fit that Strowman box. Yeah. So I think a lot of people in your career put you in a box of, like, yeah. this is what you do, and this is what you're good at. And when you stray away from it, um, people are shocked, and they, they judge it incorrectly. That, well, that's true. That's true. And I, and I believe it's, it's, beca- it's more critical towards a woman also. I think women get criticized not only in show business but in politics, mm-hmm. in every field, um, that their critics are harsher than the critics of men. And um, But it's, you know, for for somebody who is, is a real true storyteller, if that's what they do, they're going to go with what's right. You know, a, a steel pier, it was appropriate for everybody to be different sizes. Yes. You know, tall, short, everything, you know. Um, it was really appropriate for the visual and for that storytelling. Um, I, I, you know, as you do go along, people do try to p- pin you into some box, and it's ridiculous since what you do is you're here for the theater and you're here to create for the theater. Yeah. So, I mean, some of my favorite stuff you've done is stuff that's outside of outside of your box. Yeah. And well, speaking of that, which the Scottsboro Boys, which was I think my favorite thing I've seen of your work. And we're talking about reviews. In New York City, it wasn't well-reviewed on Broadway. Off-Broadway, it was. Yes. And so that's why I'm happy that in London, it was so well-received. But also, Steel Pier and Thou Shall Not, these, for me, I cherish my um, my flops because, flops is a terrible word, but yes. because I learned so much from them. How does that affect you? Because I think oftentimes we don't see that, how it affects the creators. Well, it's hard, you know. The thing is, you're right about flops, It's or, I think, you know, uh, it's really financially for the producers it could be considered a flop because they didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. But for an artist, it's never considered a flop. No. For the creators, uh, for the actors, you learn so much from any show you do. What it is is a heartbreak when something doesn't run. But um, it can never be considered a flop. I mean, everything I've done, I've it's been like a stepping stone to the next show, um, what I've learned from that uh, in, in whatever, research or pre- preparation or execution, uh, you, you learn, you learn, you learn. And, and you know, I know I've, I've been able to create things that have never been seen before, but didn't get any points for it, mm. you know. But it doesn't mean that, um, you know, for me and my heart as an artist, it didn't fill me fill me to the brim uh, so they are the shows that don't work are more heartaches but but it's I think for any artist any any actor they shouldn't consider anything a flop a producer yeah yes. <laughs> a producer yeah sadly sadly yes <laughs> well um, one show I'm really proud of was was thou shall not and but also it was it bonded us because we we're dealing with September 11th during that show yes. and I remember coming back on September 12th and we're in the middle of tech, and you gave this beautiful speech about, like, we're here to do what we love. We're going to show them that we're not afraid, and we don't have fear, and their terror didn't work. 
and then uh, Harry Connick played the Star Spangled Banner out front, um, and then we just got to work, and it was so, it was such a, a thrilling moment in a terrible time too. And you, you pulled that company together like no, no, like nothing I've seen. Well, I have to say, I think Belshazzar was one of the hardest things I've gone through, just because to rally a crew. <clears throat> You know, the crew wanted to be down there with the firefighters and, and to rally a crew or rally actors uh, for a very terrible time. And we didn't really know also what was going on. And uh, all you can do, you know, those, those people that, that did that, you know, they just want to break your spirit, you know, and, they, and, and the only way you can win is just to keep going forward. And uh, so it was a very hard time. And I think for that particular show, it was a dark show. And no one wanted to see anybody doing anything wrong on stage. Mm. They only wanted to see, you know, goodness. And and that, you know, show had had characters in there that um, did not have <laughs> good good qualities. So so it was difficult for people at that time to watch something where there was a story with no redeeming character. Yes. So it was a that was a tough one, yet. You know, I got to collaborate with Harry Connick, who's I think a superstar and a genius. Yes. Oh. And and also, you know, I got the opportunity to work on three turntables and choreograph three turntables together, and to, so to work technically with choreography, um, and you know, I, I felt like the company themselves were were very strong, super group. You know, so. And we were we were telling the story of a very great novel. Yes, uh, Zola, you know, uh, one of the greatest writers, and so it do, does have wonderfully great things about it that I remember. But of course, September 11th overshadows that one. Absolutely. Well, I love the ballet that we did from that number, from that show. But my favorite number was actually the opening number that was cut. The uh, the we did the sign of the cross no. that it didn't it made it like three performances but if they ever do like you did Fosse if they ever do Stroh uh, Stroh the musical well, you'll have to put it I'll together put, I'll, I'll, I'll put that number together okay um, so uh, Deb Monk uh, talked about laughing and, and whenever in your rehearsals Deb Monk and you laugh constantly and yes. I love the sound of your laugh yes she said you came up with the word Deb Monk everyone calls her that the Deb Monk yeah the Deb Monk so where did Stroh come from. Stroh actually came out early when I first came to New York when um, I was actually uh, doing um, Flora the Red Menace uh, at the venue with Scott Ellis and Tommy Thompson, the writer, and Kandra Neb. They, I think at, uh, when my generation, there were a lot of Susans. Mm. And uh, I guess there were too many Susans in the room or too many Susans in their lives. And so they just started calling me Stroh and it just stuck. And so they... I have to say that that long time ago, and it so it was right when I first started. And then we see everyone calls you Stro. Yes. Does anyone call you Susan or Stro? Uh, just my family. Just your family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we, we talked about Degas and reviews, um, sometimes I think people, when a person gets famous and they're very well respected as you, they don't think you have feelings, so they're allowed to say horrible things in in reviews. And I even felt like, for example, with Young Frankenstein. People were already saying stuff about it before it even opened because they didn't want you to have two hits in a row. Yeah. I mean, they had the producers. I mean, how, how do you do you become impervious or you just not care what people think? Or how do you handle that type of... Well, no, it's difficult, I think, for anybody um, who's, who has a success. You know, even a, you know, a, a novelist has a success and then the next book isn't as strong and, and you know, the reviewers are terrible on them. Uh, it's... You listen. You have to go forward. You have to to take these these moments and in of what you created, and and that's the thing that makes you strong, and that's what you have to hang on to. It's I think that idea of um, that people not wanting you to succeed, I do find odd. I find yes. that odd because uh, I want everybody to succeed, and I want all my you know colleagues and folks who are on Broadway right now, I, I want them all to succeed. I want them all to get good reviews. The ones I don't even know well, like why would I not want that? So, yeah. I, so it is an odd, I know what you're talking about. There are, are a few out there that, that are gunning for you for you don't know why, like uh, you, don't, you just don't understand it. And it's just a way of life. I think it's probably, of course it's in politics and um, it's in 
It's in literature. It's it's in all the fields where someone is is gunning. Because you have a hit show, uh, the the producers. It was employing the orchestra and the light ops and the ushers for that long of a period of time that people just think, oh, they're making so much money. They're not realizing the amount of people, employment, deployment, yeah. the concession stands. There, I mean, and that's when I think sometimes when people bring in stars, they're like, oh, they're just stunt casting it. They're not realizing the whole trickle down of that person keeping a show open for of that course, long. Of course, of course, that's true. Yeah, and some, you know, it's interesting because Bullets Over Broadway, the theme of that, which I love, was about how much would you compromise for your art? Mm. Would you kill for your art? Would you have someone else write your words for you? You know, in Woody Allen's world, um, Cheech was the real artist because he refused to compromise for his art. So he kills Olive. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do, you know, we do have to compromise for our art. And whether that bring, means bringing in stunt casting or whatever to, um, to sustain the livelihood of everybody around you, you do have to compromise sometimes. And, it, and I know it kills a lot of artists and a lot of creators, but it's, it's the way of the world. We have to adjust to the world now. Everything, not everything gets to be always creative. So during the, one of the most successful times in your life, uh, it was also when you were dealing with the biggest tragedy of your life. And Mike Ockren, who I got to make my debut with him in Christmas Carol, was such a magic man. And the two of you worked so well together. You were, you were a team uh, as a husband and wife, even in rehearsal. You saw that chemistry, which was nice. And he was diagnosed with cancer right around the contact time. Yes. So here contact is transferring. It's becoming revolutionary. And your personal life is falling apart. How were you able to walk and get out of bed? That was a true love there. Well, yeah, yeah, that was a terrible time. I, I have to say that the theater saved me. I, I, I don't know how people lose someone they love so much or have a terrible tragedy if when they're working at a job they don't love or, or a, a nine-to-five behind a desk that they don't love or whatever they do, that they don't love their work. You know, I... I found solace I th uh, and compassion and and just um, great comfort in the theater you know historically the theater has been comforting you know uh, forever you know during the depression with Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies you know people would seek them out as comfort during the depression and I, and I think for me to go through such a terrible time because and then the grief was very long a very long time for me. Um, uh, thank God I had the theater, mm. and and the theater did bring me comfort. And and um, I thank I thank uh, my lucky stars that I'm involved in the theater because, you know, I've I've lost several people in my life. And you know, when I first hit the city, I uh, hit the city right during the AIDS epidemic, mm. and and I lost my dance partner. I lost my roommate. Uh, I lost many friends and and often think back of what the collaboration might be had I had they lived and I had gotten to collaborate with them. So these losses that we all go through, the fact that we do have the theater to bring us comfort, uh, we're, we're a very lucky group. Yes, I agree. I know um, when my sister died shortly after we did the Steel Peer workshop, and I was away at the funeral, and when I came home, um, my partner at the time, said he's like um i just talked to susan stroman and still Pierce going to broadway so it was uh which is uh, first of all that you called all of us at home is so classy but it was i i was at the most horrible time in my life and then finding out that i was making my broadway debut it is it is healing and it is yes. safe yes uh and i'd love that you you do some classy things like that when i auditioned for frogs i have a final call back i didn't get it you sent me a letter saying that I, I didn't get it, but thank you for coming in. Is that something that you're just, you're just classy naturally? <laughs> uh, but that's, I mean, there's such a, there's a personal touch that, that you have that also makes people feel special. Well, you know what? The hardest thing is within that kind of situation is auditioning. You know, when, when I have a room, actually, when I have a room full of, say, guys dancing full out, you know, 25 men in a room, my mind thinks, why can't I just do a show with these 25 men <laughs> and just do a show with these guys that are in front of me? You know, it's, it's hard casting because um, it, you do sometimes not get a job uh, for some simple reason, you know, that, that 
uh, you need to, that particular track needed to understudy, you know, somebody else, or um, it took it took four people the same size to do something or something, you know, but not 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 really about anybody's talent, and I, f I find that you know just heartbreaking, and so it really when I know when recognize talent when I really recognize somebody's talent and know that they're truly talented and truly special. Uh, the fact that I cannot use them makes me crazy. <laughs> but the fact that I cannot use them, you know, you always kind of want to extend yourself to those folks that made it close, made it, you know, closely made it and, and couldn't get in for some other reason. Now two shows have smaller companies and, and now also you have to have find double understudies because of now in the union there are many more vacations and personal days. So, mm. you know, everybody now has to understudy. Uh, and so it's much more difficult to find maybe the pure triple threat that you need and you know because maybe that pure person that would have been perfect for this part has to do because of union rules or whatever has to understudy somebody they would not be able to understudy oh right so it's hard uh, auditioning is the worst the day after audition somebody up audition a show I have to go right into therapy the next day because <laughs> I hate rejecting people yeah. oh well I think too for a performer we don't realize how much goes into it we walk in there and just think I gave everything and they didn't like me we don't realize they have to cover this person yeah, and, that a puzzle. Pers and that person has to be a tenor and yes yeah, so also yes you're collaborating with the musical director you know and and the writer it's not you you don't always have the last say you know and, and a, a producer you know so it's a lot of people coming to a conclusion. Are there general mistakes that people make when they come in in the room? Or uh, like, well, you know what? You want uh, the person who stands in front of you to f uh, seem fearless. You mm. you want them to seem strong and confident, uh, confident about their talent, confident about who they are. If someone comes in too too nervous or too scattered or too silly. How you think? Well, how am I? They're not going to inspire me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so selfishly, you're thinking, wait a minute. You know, so you want somebody to come in just calmly and with confidence, and um, and you know, you can sort of sniff out a fearless quality, mm. and uh, that those those are the folks you want to work with. Oh no, fearless is a it's a good word. Yeah. This is like is is there an unspoken rule of how long an ensemble person should stay with the show? Um, I know they should probably just stay with it till the end of the run, <laughs> but I think a lot of times I hear people, oh, I burned a bridge because I, uh, I left too early. I mean, is there say you have, should stay for a year or is it case to case? Oh, geez. I think it's the situation too of, you know, all the situations are different about how a show is maintained and, you know, if someone leaves too early before someone has taught understudies or leaves too early mm. uh, because of, and before the show is, is struck that the show is struggling and they they leave and there's no money for another costume or something you know it it's all different uh it's all kind of the sh the kind of financial showbiz part that gets involved with that too personally i would love people just to stay forever because <laughs> <laughs> you know i've cast them because i love them right but i understand when somebody wants to leave you know i you know you want people to to go out there and get, get the next job um, but I think I don't think I don't think burning bridges uh, uh, certainly not from me. But I could see in a situation where if a show was struggling and someone left at the wrong time, mm. it would be memorable. Yes, <laughs> uh, I understand that. So with the producers was um, first time doing a no. Actually, Music Man was your first time directing choreography, and then with the producers, you kind of solidify that that's. Uh, a direction and that contact you're was before that, so it was oh. music man contact producers. Oh, so so my producers, you're you old hat. <laughs> I was an old hat. Is that is that something that uh, you see yourself doing solely now? Occasionally you'll uh, choreograph, but did you always want to direct and choreograph, or did that just kind of become yes, that? Uh, I think you know ultimately yes, because you all you kind of want to create your own vision of something. Mm. You only create kind of like contact in a way you would love to get your hands on something that was totally your vision. So I think in, yes, even early on, you know, doing the whole thing was an, sort of an ultimate goal. Um, you know, the thing is when you choreograph for the theater, you are 
on the same page with the director as mm. a choreographer. So you um, have to know the motivation of the acting beats and the motivation of why they're dancing this way and and the motivation of all the scene work. So so your choreography does have to be seamless. So in the end, you've you've really taken the journey with that director. So it's quite natural if if you are good at that, you know, uh, that that you would ultimately do the entire evening. Uh, and so now, as a director, do you look at casting the ensemble differently than it would a choreographer? Because now you're looking also at the singers who move and the, the <laughs> actors and stuff like that, and they become part of your wheelhouse. How is it working with? As a director with those ensemble members, uh, I think it's the same way. It's it's in the end, you know, it always like, goes back to the storytelling and yeah. the acting, and that's why you want people to be able to do it all. You want them to not only sing and dance, but to really be able to act. And whether it's uh, serious or whether it's funny, whether it's comical or whether it's romantic, whatever that element that you need, um, uh, you you need to find that now with your ensemble. You know, because you want also the ensemble to um, the, the sort of essence of the ensemble to exemplify the story. Mm. So, um, you know, the kind of couples in Steel Pier exemplify that story of, of those particular actors of the struggle to win that marathon. You know, they're very much a part of that world in, uh, in talent and in the visual. Whereas, you know, the folks who are in the producers, you know, part of their audition was not only to sing and dance and read a scene, but they had to tell a joke. Yes. And so... I remember you know, people practicing those jokes, jokes all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it's different, you know, for Oklahoma. When I did Oklahoma here with Trevor Nunn, people had to sing and they had to dance and then they had to do a monologue of an American writer. So, oh. so you want your um, ensemble to also you know, have the vibe and the essence of the entire story. And you also uh, went and worked with Martha Graham and the New York City Ballet. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw the Martha Graham piece. Yes. And how is that different? Because that's a completely different uh, discipline and world when it comes to their type of ensemble and their work ethic. Yes, it's, well, it is different. I, I've, I've done a couple ballets for Pacific Northwest Ballet, mm -hmm. for New York City Ballet. And, and uh, the thing is there, the, the dance is the star, the, the, the physical dance is the star and so you're not not dealing with with singing or having to say lines I ultimately want these these dancers to also act but um, in the end uh, it's all about the dance and mm. um, so that's very different from what we do in the theater you know in the in the theater you you're creating something for uh, a, a very specific man or a very specific character whereas in the dance dance world is a more abstract theme of a character and um, I, it does g give me freedom though it gave me a different kind of freedom because even though I was doing working with a dance company I still had a bit of a story in there mm. and would want them to to act a certain part for New York City Ballet I did a full-length ballet called Double Feature and uh, it was it was a nod towards silent film. The first was a drama. First act was a drama called The Blue Necklace, and the second act was a comedy called Whoopi, uh -huh. and uh, um, make a Whoopi. And uh, so they did ultimately play characters, and I think they really enjoyed that. Uh, but they played real people. Mm. They weren't playing fairies or ducks or anything. They were playing <laughs> real people, and I think they enjoyed that. And and I boy enjoyed working with them. You know, just their Gosh, their strength is spectacular. And for like Pacific Northwest Ballet, I did a piece called Take Five, more or less, because I loved um, Dave Brubeck music. And I wanted to do a, a piece uh, kind of celebrating that music. And it was all about dancers not really taking five, not really taking a rest, and that they constantly dance. And, and so it had a, a, an abstract feel to it, but there was a, a theme through it. So even in these, these pieces that I get to do with these dance companies, you still, uh, for me, uh, want to find something that has a bit of story in it. And it's always about the creative, the creative process and, and discovering. Yes. I loved when you got to invent stuff in a rehearsal period and then it gets just 
cut. And then the next day there's a new a new song coming in and yeah. and then that just gets cut. And the amount of stuff you could probably put on four other productions with songs of that. Do you That's like true. the workshop process? I do, sure. I do. Um, because something that you think is is going to work for sure, all of a sudden you put it in front of an audience or you get it in the journey of the whole piece and you realize it doesn't work. It, it's something that you thought for sure it was going to work or something that you know thought for sure was going to be funny it was only funny in your <laughs> living room and it was not funny outside of your living room so no it's good the workshop process is good because uh you sometimes deal with things in chunks but there you actually see it as a whole piece and a whole journey and it's not until you actually put numbers up on their feet do you see if something does or doesn't work Everything about being in a room with you was a no, joy, not just thanks. not just the dance. Yeah. Um, so, of all your your career, you have uh, five Tonys. So that's that's a huge career highlight. But when it personally, what would you say is your biggest career accomplishment? Oh, jeez, uh, um, accomplishment. Well, I think one of the the highlight was probably the first Tony, which was crazy for you, and that was such a joyous. Um, night and and Mike was alive and there and it was an incredible incredible time and so I'll always remember that one as being very very special and that that chorus was spectacular mm -hmm. those dancers were great and they, they were all funny and uh, and uh, it was such a good book and so that was I think that was probably the, the highlight of happiness and joy um, it's interesting accomplishments. You know, I was uh, I'm proud of a lot of things. Uh, the the uh, I was the accomplishment contact, I suppose, because it sort of broke all sorts of um, rules, mm. and I kind of liked that, and and that it was had more dance in it than than most shows. So that felt like a, a great accomplishment to do something that sort of just sprung from my head and. Um, and to make it into a whole evening, and uh, and then it, then probably though the most memorable would have been the night of the producers and mm. and that Tony Award and you know Mel <laughs> being outrageous and um, you know just that journey was spectacular and uh, very memorable and um, and to, and how lucky I am to have Mel as as a good friend and yeah. to this day and. Uh, you know, so I can't really pick one. They're all they all have sort of different elements oh, of hopeful accomplishment, fun, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. But I, I do know how fortunate I am because I, I absolutely love what I do, and I love working with actors. I love working with dancers, especially. Uh, they're always the smartest in the room. Don't tell the actors, but they're always the smartest. Uh, I will not tell. I agree. <laughs> um, but you know, whenever I have to like pull something off, and I know. I, the only way that that unit is going to get unpinned, I'm not going to get an actor to do it, I'm going to get a dancer to do it, make sure the show can keep going. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, I really, really love what I do, so I, I do know how fortunate I am. And, um, and it has to do with the life kind of force of it all, the life force of everyone involved. You know, we, this particular medium, there's no medium like it where costumes are hand sewn and and sets are you know built and uh, with someone with a hammer and you know it's everything is live and life and um and that it breathes every night and that that every night it's different for that audience you know so whatever whatever an audience is watching it's only special for them for that night uh, and there's something uh, extraordinary about that uh. No, that's beautiful. <laughs> so, did you retire your baseball hat, your black baseball <laughs> hat? I got, I got a little too old for my ponytail, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I that it's kind of started by when you going back to one of your first questions about women in the business. When I first needed to now be in charge or know I was going to be in charge in New York, it was playing down any kind of femininity or playing down mm. any, you know, not it's shoving my hair up under a cap. It was wearing you know, jackets and, and no, you know, it was everything about it. Now, um, I don't do that. Don't have to do it. But I don't think women should do that now. I don't think, 
I think I had to do it because that was 30, more than 30 years ago. And it felt like I had to dress a certain way just so no one would think uh, anything but that I was dead serious about pulling this off. Uh, but I feel like women today should, if they want to go in and babe it up, they should and, mm. and be accepted for that look and, and do it. But it was different when I started. So that's kind of how the baseball cap started. Yeah. Started really was just shoving it all under a hat. And uh, But then ultimately I just got too old for my ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look amazing. You look, you look the same as when I worked with you, which I'm not going to say how long well, ago that was. I know. Uh, the first time, anyway. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. I, mean, I know you, uh, you changed my life and my career, and I know uh, almost everyone that I've worked with since I worked with you, I met working with you. The, the cast of Steel Pier alone has spread out and rehired me. So it was, yes. I know you definitely changed my life and now you're gonna change it uh, more. And now people that you don't even know through this podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate you you calling me and asking me to do this. I'm oh. quite flattered. Thank oh. you so much. Oh, well, I'm flattered you said yes. <laughs> if you could end this with a song from your career or your life, is there one song that you pops out of your head? Yes, I think um, Nice Work If You Can Get It from Crazy For You. Mm. I think that one, not only uh, for its lyric, but um, you'll hear in the dance arrangement, it, it, the dance arranger for Crazy Few was Peter Howard, who was one of our greatest dance arrangers. And I think all the dance arrangers today sort of stand on the shoulders of Peter Howard, but it comes at a time in the play where Bobby Child doesn't know whether he should stay in New York or, or go back to Dead Rock, Nevada. So the music kind of pushes and pulls in its feel of, of, of dancing fast and dancing slow with contemplation. And then ultimately, you know, a celebratory ending when he decides to go back to Dead Rock, Nevada. So its arrangement has great emotion and sweep. And, and I just feel like I relate to that song. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Thank Stroh. you. Thank you.
holding hands at midnight beneath a starry sky. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. Strolling with the one girl, sighing sigh after sigh. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try.